President of Wheaton College, Hudson Ameriting, once called out from the front of the chapel, will Michael Dwight please come forward? Hudson had been a naval officer before he was president, so the request, it sounded more like a command than a question. Michael, he was a leader of the malcontents of the college. He was known to have a certain attitude towards authority. So you could have heard a pin drop in the chapel as everybody held their breath, waiting for what fireworks might fly. Michael got up, he slowly made his way to the front, and Hudson looked at him and addressed him directly. Michael, he said, I want you to know that you're my brother in Jesus, that I love you, and I refuse to allow what others may think about our differences to come between us. The two men didn't hug. And as you can imagine, all the, all the pent-up tension went out of that room like air going out of a balloon. Well, the, the embrace of those two men paint a picture of what most of us which the, wish the church would more often look like, doesn't it? People of different generations, different appearances, different attitudes, different gifts, united, overlooking their differences and believing, and even more so, acting as though each and every one had something valuable to add, a, was a precious contribution to the rest. And yet, if we're honest, what well, we smile at that story, and deep down we wish it would happen more often, we all know that all too often it doesn't. Well, instead of drawing together, we tend to reflect the world we live in. A world in which we're taught to look out for number one. In fact, we're taught if you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. I mean, let's face it, many Christians today act like that. In fact, many are so individualistic that they believe they really don't need the church, and because of it, they rarely, if ever, darken the doors of the church. Many have even concluded that if the church doesn't do the music they like, or if the preaching doesn't suit them, or if their ministries that are important to them don't exist in the church, then it's just not worth their time. Sadly, even among those that show up, many often only come on their own terms. They often never invest. They're the last to arrive, the first to leave. All which is far from the ideal that God sets out for us as his people. After all, the Bible, it never gives a picture of the independent solo Christian. Sure, God at times, he called individuals, he called people to stand up for him, to stand in the gap, to rebuke his people or correct them, to stand against great odds, sometimes all alone. But despite that, there's no, you can make no mistake that God was, through that, always trying to unite his people, to create a people, a group after his liking, something that he continued right into the New Testament period with the church. In fact, so central was this desire, so essential that the New Testament speaks of it incessantly. Not sure? In the book of Romans, we're told to be devoted to each other and accept one another. In 1 Corinthians, we're told to care for one another. In Galatians, to bear one another's burdens. In 1 Thessalonians, to build up one another. In James, to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. In 1 Peter, to serve one another. In 1 John, to love one another. And that's just scratching the surface. The focus on one another is so significant that it shows up 40 times in Paul's letters alone. Christians are part of each other. They receive one another, think about one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens, and submit to one another. And truthfully, if the language wasn't enough, then there's the images that God uses of his people, whether that's when he pictures them as a family. Now, I know that there are families that don't act like families, but we all know that a family is meant to do life together, that they're supposed to support each other and care for each other. Or consider when Paul refers to the church as bricks in a building. I don't know, but how many blocks do you think I'd have to remove from the wall behind me before this wall would collapse? 10, 20? Blocks, they they belong together. They only do what they're supposed to do when they're put together. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to call a bunch of, of blocks a wall if they were independent of one another. They'd just be a pile of loose bricks. You certainly wouldn't call them a building. 
Now, wherever you look, the Bible it paints a picture of God's people being united together. Well, one of the passages that helps to paint the pas- that picture is the passage we come to today. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Ephesians, this time chapter 4. As you turn there, you remember that over the last couple of months, we've been making our way through this book, a, a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to those in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Paul, he had lived in Ephesus for two to three years. He, he knew how difficult it was to live there as a believer, and so he wanted to encourage them. Well, after spending the first three chapters doing that, reminding the believers in Ephesus of God's goodness to them, of the kind of salvation that he had given them, Paul now moves his attention on to how that should affect them, how it should affect how they act in the section we want to read today. You can follow as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul writes this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now here the Apostle Paul, he starts to encourage the believers in Ephesus and us today to live a life worthy of our calling. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, have you ever wondered what that means? What Paul is getting at when he encourages us to live a life worthy of the calling? And truthfully, there are few phrases in Scripture that I've spent more time pondering than that. After all, if one day we are going to stand before God and we want Him to be pleased with how we use this salvation and freedom He's given us, how we've used this calling He's entrusted us with, don't you think we should know? Well, here in this passage and over the next several weeks, Paul is going to start to define what that looks like. He's going to start to answer that question. And in the section we just read, he starts by what that means for how we are to live together. So notice first. Paul, he wants us to know that as believers, because of all God has done for us, that we're to do everything we can to maintain unity. That we must be unified to live a life worthy of the calling. In fact, so much so that here here Paul, he starts off by giving a list of things we should do. A list of behaviors and attitudes that we should have. Character traits that are meant to help us be united. Paul, he starts by telling us we need to be humble. Unfortunately, when we see that word humble, we often miss what it means. We Just assume it means the opposite of being proud, but there's more to it than that. In fact, the best description I've come across was one by Watchman Nee of China in his commentary on Ephesians. 
In it, he tells this story of a believer in South China who had a rice field on a hill. Well, during the growing season, this believer, he would have to work this hand-worked water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran at the base of the hill up to his fields. His neighbor had two fields below his, and one night after this man had spent all day pumping the water up to his fields, his neighbor decided to poke a hole in the dividing wall and drained all the Christian's waters, water to fill up his own field. The Christian brother was distressed, but he laboriously pumped water up into his own field the next day again, only to have it stolen once more. This happened three or four times, and at last he decided he better talk to his Christian friends. He said, what shall I do? I've tried to be patient. I've tried not to retaliate. Isn't it right for me to confront him? He just keeps stealing my water. doing All my work is going to nothing. He just keeps taking it. They then prayed together, and one of them said, if we only try to do the right thing, surely we're very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what's right. So the next day, this man went out, and he first pumped water for the two fields below his, for his neighbor's fields. And then that afternoon worked to fill his own two fields. Well, from that day on, the water stayed in his field, and the neighbor in time asked him why he had behaved that way. Well, that is what humility is. You see, humility, it's not just not being proud or, or not thinking of yourself more highly than you should. It's not just being humble enough to apologize when you've done something wrong or to serve one another. No, it's refusing to insist on our rights and actually putting our neighbor's interests before our own. Dwight Pentecost, a famous pastor, he once told of a church split that happened in the States. The split was so serious that each side actually filed a lawsuit against each other, trying to have the other group removed from the church. They just completely disregarded the command in Scripture to not take a fellow believer to court. The courts, they would eventually throw it out, and then this complaint would come to a church court who awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The other faction withdrew. They started their own church down the street. But in the course of the proceedings, the court found that the conflict had begun, had begun at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. It was all due to a lack of humility. Well, having listed humbleness, Polly then goes on to tell us that we are to be gentle or meek. Now, sadly, I sometimes think when we hear that word meek, we think of the word weak. But meekness is not weakness. After all, meekness was the chief characteristic of Moses, who was, according to Numbers, strong enough to stand before Pharaoh, and yet gentle enough in the sense that when faced with undeserved criticism, he didn't respond in anger, but still went to God on behalf of those offenders. The word, it could be used to describe a domesticated ox or a horse, strong but tame. To gentleness, Paul then adds patience. Patience is a long-suffering. It's the very thing that God has shown us. After all, even though we fail, even though we constantly mess up, although we aren't as committed as we should be and fall into sin and disregard what he wants, God is patient with us. Well, here Paul says that living a life worthy of the calling is to show that kind of patience with others as well. So Paul, he doesn't end there. No, instead he goes on with, to say bearing with one another, that we're to endure wrongs committed against us, suffer the slight of someone else and let it go. And then to top it all off, he mentions unity. I hope you noticed, while all those characteristics make us worthy of the calling, all of them also pointed to unity. After all, without humility, without thinking of others, it isn't long before unity falls apart, does it? Without gentleness, unity, it might look like a military unit, but would never resemble the kind of unity the Bible talks about based on love. And without patience, well, unity is just not maintainable. In other words, the life worthy of the calling is a life lived in unity with other believers. 
Today we live in a world where unity of purpose is sometimes sought after. Just a quick search of the, the word team unity will bring up a whole bunch of websites from how to build team unity to national unity to why unity is important and even articles of the disastrous effects of breaking team unity. Somehow the world has figured out that there's just something powerful in synergy in, in working together. In fact, the story is told of a horse pull where one horse pulled 9,000 pounds, another 8,000 pounds. So they put them together and figured they'd pull 17,000 pounds. But not so. When the team was put together, they pulled 30,000 pounds. You see, it's just that as we work together, we're in, we can do far more than we could on our own. And with that in mind, companies today, they take their staff on retreats. They play games as leadership teams to unify them, all with the hope that they're going to sell more or be more productive, uniting them around that common goal. Well, here, Paul, he tells us as a believer, we have something greater than selling a product or winning a game to unify us. That instead, our unity comes from the very core of who we are, the very core of who God has made us to be as his people. In fact, Paul, he takes it a step further and tells us that unity has already been given to us, that God has joined believers together. I mean, don't miss it. Paul is saying that when you came to faith, when you became a believer, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, not only did he forgive you and adopt you into his family, not only did you get united to him, Paul is saying he united you to other believers as well. It wasn't a membership card you needed to sign. We didn't make you go to a class for new members. But make no mistake, you are still united together with others. In fact, here Paul, he gives us seven things that bind us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one hope, one spirit, one body. You know, that, that image of body is one that Paul often chose to, to, to signify this unity. Over in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul chose that image as well. He wrote this, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Paul, he wanted to stress how connected we are to each other. You see, Paul knew that we'd all understand that image of a body. We could identify with it. After all, we, we've all jammed our finger or pulled a muscle and know how it affects the rest of us. How if one part of our body isn't functioning right or is suffering, how the rest is affected. Well, here Paul says that like that, believers are knit together into a body. Not a few bodies, not many bodies, but to one body. That if you're a believer, you've been made part of it. No doubt that, that means that you're part of the global church, the group of believers around the world, but it also means that you're part of the local church, that he has knit us together with local groups of believers. In other words, if God has you here at FBC, he's made you a part of this body. So that's not the only thing we share in common. No, Paul mentions more. You know, today, sometimes we hear testimonies of people share how they came to know Jesus. One maybe at school, another through their parents, a third through a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room. But the stories are much more similar than you think. Sure, we may have come to faith in different settings at different times, at different ages, but when we talk about what God did to bring us to faith, they are identical. After all, Scripture is clear that God made us alive. We were all justified by Him. We were all redeemed from darkness by Him. We were all adopted into His family by Him, all forgiven by Him, and all given the same Spirit by Him. Every one of us, whether we came to faith like I did with my mom at the age of five or whether we were on our deathbed, it doesn't matter. We share the same story. We have the same starting point. When we were sinners in need of a Savior, 
destined to hell, Jesus met us, saved us, and made us his own. And because he has, not only do we share the same beginning, we also share the same hope, the common hope that one day Jesus will return. In essence, Paul says, not only do you have the same starting place as a believer, but you also have the same ending place. Our futures don't differ. So I I can hear some say, well, that may be, but the roads we take to get there are different, Chad. I mean, your life doesn't look like mine. And while that's true, while your life may have different tasks to it that God has given you, even when it comes to our journeys, there's more similarities than you might think. In fact, no doubt with that in mind, Paul tells us that we share one in the same faith, a faith with the same priorities and values, and are part of the same family. Back in chapter 2, Paul wrote this, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access to one Spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you're a believer today, you are part of the same family. And like a family, there's nothing that can change that. Today, there are often all kinds of divisions among God's people, just as there are in families. From racial to social status to more recently vaccine status and one's view of COVID, each and every one of those being a potential threat to the unity God has given. Well, well, how do we overcome all those differences? It's not by arguing and complaining and strong-arming people into agreeing with us or posting stuff online condemning others' views. No, where we start is where Paul started, by turning our eyes off of the differences and onto all the things that God has made in common for us because of our faith. We start by remembering we're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the type of Paul, unity Paul is presenting is, it's not like the world's. It's not a unity that desires, that desires is to get what it wants, and it'll help as, as long as you help me reach my agenda, we can work together. But the second you don't, don't expect to find me other, anywhere. It's not like that. It, it's not a unity that's temporal or one that only acts unified when we agree. Nor is it a unity that doesn't allow preferences. Truthfully, I don't even think it's a unity that mandates that we have to think highly of each other. In fact, I wouldn't even say that it means that we have to like each other. But instead, it's a unity that, ha- that comes from having been joined together into the same family, from having the same Lord, being given the same task to do. A unity that comes because God has given it. Now, don't hear me wrong. Just because God has given it, that doesn't mean that unity is something we don't have to work on. No one said, well, unity is given. Well, if you're a believer, you have been knit into a body You've been made a permanent fixture in the family. You and I, we can easily destroy unity. And like a family, can rip it apart. Instead of acting like a body, we can act, instead of acting like a part of the body, we can act like a cancer in it. And so Paul, he tells us here, he urges us to make every effort to maintain unity. Karl Barth put it this way, it's hardly possible to render exactly, exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb here. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sediment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. The imperative mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligent tempered by a deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative, Paul's saying. Do it now. Make every effort. Mean it. In other words, Paul wants us, he's telling us that we need to value unity, to have it at the forefront of our minds at all times, to invest in it, protect it, cherish it, and do what we can to keep it. No, that doesn't mean we compromise on core doctrines. But when it comes to things that are not core, we see unity 
is more important. Well, if unity is that important, you've got to ask yourself, how are you doing with that? I mean, do you show patience? Do I show patience? Do, do we bear with one another? Do we make every effort, not some, not a bit, not a little bit of effort, but every effort to maintain unity? Do we put aside our preferences for others? Well, here's Paul saying, if you want to live worthy of calling, you need to strive to maintain unity. So let me ask you, are you contributing to unity or taking away from it? So that's not the only reason that Paul gives us here for being unified. No, not only does it enable us to live a life worthy of calling, but notice as well, we must live in unity because God has given you and I as gifts to each other. And it's only by being unified that we can be what he's made us to be as a gift. That's a radical kind of disturbing thought, isn't it? After all, to be given as a gift to another person is not something we commonly think about, unless we're talking about a marriage or the birth of a child. It certainly isn't something we commonly think about when it comes to the church. I mean, if that is true, then part of God's gift to me is you, and part of God's gift to you is me. Now, I know some of you are wondering if I came with a gift receipt, so you can return me. But here's the thing, like it or not, when you were saved, you were not only made one with other believers, you were made into a gift. You were knit into a, a local family here and made into a gift to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you're some sort of property. Paul is not saying that we can demand things of each other, but instead Paul envisioned a church where everyone had a task to do. Each played a role, and as they filled that role, the church grew and became what God would want it to be. They acted as gifts to each other. Think of it this way. Think of it like a puzzle. I don't really like puzzles much, but think of it like a puzzle. Every piece is different, but every piece is essential. After all, if all the pieces were the same, you wouldn't have a puzzle, would you? All the differences, all the bumps, the different contours, the different colors, they make them fit together. Well, the church is like that. Paul, he mentions a few of those pieces here, saying that Jesus gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And while I could describe the roles of each of those, what Paul's really doing is using the differences among the leadership to make the point that there are differences within God's people. Now, let's be honest. Often these differences are the very things that irritate us, the very thing that cause us to get on each other's nerves. Sometimes we even think that church would be better off if everyone was more like us, thought like us, acted like us, liked the same music we did. But here, Paul, he tells us that God doesn't think so. Instead, has made us different, giving us different personalities, different abilities, different experience, that he's designed a puzzle and made you a piece in it. He's given you a piece, made you into a piece in his puzzle. In fact, so much so that he anchors this in God giving gifts, in Jesus giving gifts, as he, as he does out of his victory, referring to Jesus ascending and his return to heaven victorious after coming to earth to save us. Comparing it really to a, a wartime victory march, something that happened back in the time when a king would return or a commander would return victorious, and as they came into the town, they would share the spoils of the war with the people. Well, just like a military victor, Jesus, he has the right to give gifts as he wishes to who he wishes and the proportion he wishes. No doubt some of those giftings are giftings you were born with. Character traits that make it so you can keep a beat or sing in tune, like, not unlike I, that can't. Other giftings that are given to you specially when you became a believer. In fact, over in Corinthians, Paul writes this, Now concerning spiritual gift, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then a few verses later, he goes on to pen, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given. To each, that means that if you're a believer, you have been given one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individual as he wills individually as he wills. You know, one of the great things about that is that no one in the church has to do all the work because Jesus has not given all his gifts to one person. And yet, the same thing that makes that wonderful also makes it scary because no one can do all the work, which means that I can't do it on my own and you can't do it on your own. I need you and you need me. We are dependent on each other. To to the point that if one of us doesn't do our part, the whole suffers. You see, it's just that no one has all the gifts needed to face every challenge a church will face. I certainly don't. I mean, let's be honest. If you know me, you know that's true. I mean, just go and talk to Joanne, and she will tell you that I can do a whole lot better at administration. Ask anyone, and they will tell you that I could be better at showing sympathy, that I seem cold and detached most of the time. So if it was left up to me to be all the church was supposed to be, then we're in real trouble. We'd be a cold, detached, disorganized church. Sure, I can grow in those things, and I try to, but for those to be my primary roles would be t- like taking that puzzle f- piece that doesn't fit, but you want it to fit, and trying to ram it into the picture. And so Jesus has given us complementary strengths and weaknesses and interests and personalities so that they fit together to make up his church. One author put it this way, some of those God uses are difficult persons that he needed to move the church past a particular challenge or make it face a sin or failing that courteous people will not address. The best evangelists I know are not very tactful. They have a boldness that I find hard to take, but God uses them. Professors are often introverted. Preachers are rarely good administrators, and church planters are often too entrepreneurial to be satisfied with maintenance ministries. But if we were all alike, there's little doubt that the church would flounder. Jesus, he made some more sympathetic than others, some more enduring than others, some more adventurous than others. Some are better ramrods for organizing the efforts of many. Some are better counselors for the concerns of individuals. Some better businessmen. Some better youth workers. Some better scholars. Some better in public and some better in private ministries. God has made many different pieces, but together they make a masterpiece. That is what Paul's getting at here. Dear Christian, don't miss it. If you're here at FBC, God has you here for a reason. He has placed you here. Gifted you in such a way, in such a time to be an impact here. Now, maybe you're a central piece, a a key piece of the puzzle. Maybe you're one of those pesky sky pieces that I can never get right. It doesn't matter. Without you, the puzzle isn't complete. It isn't even worthy to be sold in a garage sale. In fact, so important are you that over in Romans 12, Paul writes, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the other. Paul says we belong to each other. That means when we don't function how we should, we fail each other. Now, just for a minute, look around. If this is your church, if this is your family, if you're a believer, then this is your family. And you're a piece of this puzzle. At least you're supposed to be. God has designed you to serve each other. He didn't squander his gifts on you. He didn't forget you. You are not giftless. He didn't 
He's not indifferent about how his gifts are used. He gave them to you to be used in his church. So if you're not using them, you're failing those around you. And not only that, you're slighting the giver of the gift. That doesn't mean that if that's you, you should just stop coming. If you do, you'd still be doing the same thing. You just wouldn't be here. Instead, it means you should start using those gifts. But Chad, you say, there's just nowhere for me to serve. Everything's covered here. Let me assure you, when things look like they're covered here, that's because we're good at covering up things that aren't covered. There is room for each one of you, and there isn't a ministry in this church that doesn't need the gifts that God has brought here for it. Still, even beyond that, you need to know that since we are a gift to each other, since we've been unified together, we need to stop dividing and be careful not to divide over trivial things. Let me be real blunt. Today in Christianity, there is a problem brewing. It has to do with COVID. I mean, not a day goes by that I don't hear about it, that I don't hear the arguments around COVID. So let me be clear. Each of you needs to honor God with the body he's given you. So if you believe that getting vaccinated is the best way to honor God, then you need to be vaccinated. If you believe that not getting vaccinated is the best way to honor God, then don't get vaccinated. The issue is not theological. Despite people wanting to draw the Bible into it and quote chapter and verse, it does not mandate it or exclude it. Sure, it's a hard topic. People are pitted against each other. And and you're entitled to your view. But I fear that God would be horrified that his people were prepared to rip the body in two over it. This is your family. And we might not agree on things, but we ought to act like a family. So let me ask you a question. If you're a believer today, what kind of gift are you to each other? Are you the type of gift that's reliable or the one that people are trying to return to the store? Well, most lastly, not only is unity the way to live life worthy calling, not only do we need unity because we've been given as gifts to each other, but we need unity if we want to mature in our faith. We just need unity to help us mature. Have you ever wondered what the real purpose of the church is? Some would say it's missions. I mean, didn't Jesus say, go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth? Still others would say the church, the purpose of the church is more in social services. They remember that Jesus spoke of separating the sheep and the goats based on whether they fed the hungry and gave drinks to the thirsty and clothed the naked and looked after the sick. So they see the church as some international social service agency. Others would see it as a hospital for the sick or a fortress for the saved. And while there's no denying that we're called to all of those things in some degree, and I don't think Paul would reject to them, are those really God's greatest purpose for the church? None of them are here in this passage. No, instead, Paul here says this purpose of the church is more foundational than that, that it exists to become full-grown, to mature and help its members become spiritual adults. Here Paul puts it this way, telling his gifts are given so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God has brought you and I together to help us grow. We need each other to do so to the point that we simply cannot be mature as Christians by ourselves. It's just that we can't give ourselves everything we need for a life of faith. I can hear someone say, well, really, is that true? I mean, Jesus is all I need, Chad. And when it comes to salvation, you're right, Jesus is all you need. But when it comes to living as a believer, well, Jesus could supply all your needs directly, he has chosen instead to use his people to do so. In other words, part of what Jesus, you need from Jesus, he's given you through each other. To the point that if you want to grow in your faith, you need each other. Oh, we miss that at times, haven't we? Instead of doing everything to maintain unity, we split over trivial things. And instead of 
you know, making a priority of gathering, we find any other reason not to gather. And as a result, because we're guilty of neglecting unity, the church at best is on maintenance mode or resembles a child that's easily swayed, not mature, easily swayed by false teaching. Or, or worse, it resembles a partially finished puzzle with missing pieces or a body on life support where half its organs are not functioning as they should. I mean, don't miss it. Paul says only, we only grow and mature as each one does their part. Let me level with you. I truly believe that unless the Church of Canada Day starts to be more united, more concerned about building others up, more focused on loving each other, then it will never be mature enough to do all that God wants it to do. Simply because God has designed us to do life, to get, life and ministry together. We can't do it apart. Even here at FBC, we can't do it apart. God has designed the church to be his representative in the world and the means by which he will grow his people. The church is his plan. It's not an optional extra, a side venture. It is the plan of God, the means to grow you and bring about his kingdom. And so it's only as we're united together that we can achieve that plan. In other words, until we seek unity, until we put others first, until we put aside things that don't matter and focus on what we agree on, FBC, like so many other churches, won't grow like it should and will fail to do what God's called us to do. Even worse, the next generation, the, the ones that's watching us, they won't see the kind of church that God has called us to, what God has done in his church, and they won't see something worth being a part of. They won't catch God's vision. And before you know it, well, our country may be dotted with church buildings, well, we might have a beautiful new lobby, an auditorium, there'll be little church to speak of. The puzzle will just be a bunch of random pieces scattered across the table. So today, now is the time to move, to make sure that doesn't happen. You are a piece of the puzzle. If you know Jesus' day, you are a piece of the puzzle. You are essential. And God is calling you to get off the table, get out of the box, and make his picture complete. The only question is, will you do so? Would you pray with me? Father, we live in a disunified world where views are hard to reconcile, where it's easier to divide than overlook differences. Lord, make us into the people that you've called us to be, the people that you've made us to be. Help us to be those that are unified one with another. In Jesus' name, amen.